You can take your Bibles and turn to the New Testament book of Luke in the 8th chapter, in the 9th verse. That's Luke chapter 8, verse 9. Today is what's often or sometimes referred to in preacher circles as an airplane sermon, which means we got a long ways to taxi before we take off. So I kind of run down the runway first. So we've been doing this series called Glad You Ask, and the question that we're going to start addressing today is, can you lose your salvation? Uh, now, let's just kind of start off with some, uh, some background here. This is a topic that's been debated probably for about 500 years now. Um, and so I'm under absolutely no delusion that what I say over the next two weeks will be the final answer to this question. All right. Um, People much smarter uh, for a much longer time have been talking about this, but uh, I think it's a good question, and uh, we're going to address that over the next two weeks, and we're going to kind of come at it from uh, two different directions, really, to kind of talk about this, this issue. Uh, start off with this. In, this. in our Venn diagram that we, we look at, this question certainly falls in that red circle, the theology circle, and the blue circle, the liberty circle. This, these two areas down here where people can kind of struggle with how their system works. It fits in those areas much more than the, than the orthodox question, although it does you know, hopefully get us there if we're right. So these two directions that we're going to come from is first we're going to deal with the problem of what I call false conversions. People who claim to be saved, but probably really aren't. And, and I really think the idea of a false conversion um, is probably the main contributor to this controversy. You know, as we see people who claim to be Christians, but never do anything Christianese, they never follow through with that. They don't, what we'll talk about, bear fruit, that they, they use it, they're kind of Christian in name only, um, or nominal Christians. Um, and so I think that's probably what adds uh, the most fuel to this controversy, to this fire, is uh, so understanding that I think is important. And next week we're going to actually address security, the security of the believer um, as it's referred to, or perseverance of the saints, as some people will talk about it, or, or in Baptist circles they'll use the phrase, once saved, always saved, that kind of idea. And just how secure are we, and can we actually lose the salvation we have? And we'll talk about the security issue next week. But I really want to talk about this, this contributing factor, this main contributing factor of false conversions. And, and so here's the, the real issue, I think, or one of the major issues we deal with when we, when we ask this question and what sparks this question is, is we, are, we probably have experience like this. You know, people who come to church, people who make some type of profession of faith, right, that I believe in Jesus, they might get baptized. Uh, they might even attend church for a while. Um, and we see them for a month or six months, nine months, maybe a year even. And then all of a sudden, they do this term we have, you know, we have all these Christianese terms, all these church language we use. They fall away, meaning they stop showing up. Uh, we don't see them anymore. We don't hear from them anymore. The, that passion and that vigor and that, that excitement they had, you know, three months ago is all of a sudden gone and they're gone. And, and we're, well, what happened in this case? Was this, is this a, a believer? Is this someone who put their faith in Christ and now they, they've fallen away? They've become, we, we invent all kinds of words. They've become a carnal Christian. By the way, I don't think carnal Christians exist. They're kind of unicorns. Uh, we talk about them sometimes, but I don't know that you can really be carnal and be a Christian. That's two things that are opposite. 
And so, we, so what's going on in this situation? We probably can think of people. You might can be thinking of someone. You might know someone who goes, yeah, that, I have a person in mind that, that I'm familiar with that. So is this person going to heaven or not? I mean, that's really the question. Are they saved or aren't they saved? Were they saved and they lost their salvation? And, and my argument in most of these cases is that this is someone who uh, didn't really have a conversion experience. There, something else happened. They got excited for a while. They were enamored with the personality of a pastor or a family member, or, or they were in a, a lot of times they're in a, a, in a moment of need, of extreme need in their life, you know, and so they, they turn to God in those moments. And when that moment of need passes, the need for God passes. And so they move on. And, and so I really think what's really happened in most of these cases is that these people weren't actually converted. They were never actually saved. And I think this is probably what sparks most of the conversation. And we see these people as we try to make sense of that. And I'll lay out my argument about this appearance of falling away. Um, the good news about that is these people, if they weren't saved, they still can be. And so we still need to care about them. We still need to reach out to them and we need to share the gospel. The Bible tells us if we see people that are sinning, that we should go to them. And, and if they repent, then we want our brother back. But if they remain unrepentant, if they remain steadfast in their way to treat them as a pagan, that there's a test for us as a church to, to kind of work through people and find out, did you really mean it or didn't you really mean it? Let's kind of define that. Now, I want to talk about what I think are some of the contributing factors to this problem. Uh, as I uh, have served as a pastor now for 17 years, um, I, I've gained a lot of experiences. And, I, and there's about four things that I think has contributed to this, this particular problem of false conversions. Uh, the first one, the first contributing factor is what people call easy believism. Um, or... I would define it as a soft gospel or an easy gospel. You know, it's that kind of, well, all you got to do is just believe in Jesus. Just, just believe. You know, and, if, and we think we can get people who, if we can get someone to say, I believe in Jesus, well, you're good, right? We pat them on the back. Great, you're saved because you said, I believe in Jesus. The problem is the Bible never tells us to make believers. It doesn't say go make believers. It says Go make disciples. And disciples are followers. Disciples are students. Disciples are who give up their life and everything they had to follow a teacher and do what a teacher did. Jesus closes out his great sermon in Matthew, in the, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. He says, if you hear these words of mine, blessed are you if you do them. <laughs> Not just believe them and so really i think that's kind of the difference in faith and belief and belief is like well i know what jesus said is right but you have faith in it when you start to practice what jesus said and so we're told not to just make believers and we we've we've made it easy we try to make this gospel an easy thing that that if you'll just believe in jesus you know you get to go to heaven and then you you know if anything bad happens you can pray and and the church is going to be there to help you and we we sell this really this really um kind of nice gospel and the gospel is nice it's good news 
But there's a, there's, a, there's a kickback to the gospel that we don't teach people. We, we've, we've adopted within our evangelism this idea, you catch more flies with honey than you do vinegar. And so we make it so sweet and so easy and so just, you just stay there. And if you will just say, I believe, that's all we want. And then when people find out that Christianity is different than this easy bill we've sold them, they're like, I'm out. That's not what you said. You said it was going to be great, and all I had to do is believe, and now you're wanting me to sacrifice, and now you're wanting me to be humble, and now you're wanting me to put other people before myself, and now you want me to stick it out when times get tough and everything doesn't work out right. That's not what we told. And we got to remember what Matthew said. Again, Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 13. It says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And so we got to, when we present the gospel to people, I think we've made it so easy. We've been so eager to get people to believe that we've made it too easy. And we've not taught the truth that the gospel, that following Jesus is a narrow and difficult way. I plan on rectifying that in my next sermon series. Uh, you'll be getting some, uh, some, uh, some literature. We're going to do a little poll that you can respond to. And the next sermon series I'm going to start working on when we get done with this is called The Narrow Way. And I'd like to hear from you guys what you have found in your life that makes it difficult to follow Christ. And so we're going to start to try to address some of those things in an upcoming sermon about what makes the narrow way so narrow. And, and from our own personal experiences, the difficulties we have, because we know it's not easy to follow Christ. And so when people get sold this easy believism, and then they find out it's different, different than that and difficult, they often fall away and turn away. And like, that's not what I signed up for. The second contributing factor is I think we often are rushing for success. And I have success in quotations, being that, that we have wanted to be successful churches. And we've defined success by baptisms and number of people on our roll. And in a rush to have success sometimes, we will tell everybody they're saved because we want to increase our numbers. We want to increase the number of people coming. We want to look like we're being a successful, a growing, a, a, a popular church. I struggle particularly in the area of child evangelism. Um, that, uh, that we need to take time in understanding the gospel. And we need to take time with children. Now, I was baptized. I was saved I, at eight years old. I was baptized when I was nine years old. You know, but, but even thinking about my own experience at that time, I mean, it was me walk down and say, preacher, I want to get saved. Okay, let's go dunk him. I mean, it was about that much time spent with me to make sure I even knew what I was talking about at that young age. And I've stood, and, and as a pastor, I have stood at many, many times with people who said, well, I did something when I was eight or when I was six or when I was three or when I was you know, 12. And I'm not sure I knew what I was doing at that time, pastor. And I, I have re-baptized 
an awful lot of people because people were so excited and rushing for success so quickly that the time, the due diligence to, to make sure that someone understood, whether it's a child or an adult, took time to really invest in them. Do you get it? Do you understand? Do you, do you really know what's happening and what this is going to cost? Now, I'm not against that. I'm not against baptizing children and, and, and as a whole, but I just think we need to be careful. We need to take time to make sure everybody clearly understands. And we don't get so excited that we rush towards the success and forget people don't know or making sure that they, so that they one day can say, I know that I know that I knew on that day what I did and never question it again. Because I know even in my own life, I, I, at times I've questioned, was I really, did I really get it back then or not? And I wrestle with that sometimes in my own head. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse five says, examine yourselves to see if you're of the faith, test yourselves, or you do not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, that we're instructed to really be careful to take good stock in our faith, to examine it and make sure it's real and valid. And we should do that for others and not just be so quick to get the win the other third contributing factor I, I think we face in church is faulty metrics um, and what I mean by that is is we have metrics to define success and metrics to define to be quite honest with you define whether a pastor is a good pastor or not and, and with the rise of the professional pastor this is something else that I, I've, I've come to realize that there's there's this pressure on the professional to deliver. <laughs> you, we, we, want, we want a guy who can get it done. And the number one thing, the number one metric we often look with is church membership and baptism. And so there's this pressure uh, on pastors to, that we measure the wrong things. We measure how many people you got coming into church, how many people you baptized this year, what, how big is your budget this year? You know, we, we set metrics that don't really define things that God cares about. And those are how we define whether we're being a good, growing, successful church or not. And so we, uh, I read and heard one guy say this recently, and I was really challenged by this. He says, we are what we measure. You know? and, and so what does God care about? And are we measuring the things that God cares about? I don't know that we can measure humility, but I know God cares about humility. I, I don't know that we can measure faithfulness. Maybe we can. But that's something that God measures. And what if we were measuring those things? You know, God cares about uh, evangelism and, and the sharing of the gospel. What if we just every week we got together? How many people shared the gospel this week? We, we started measuring different things instead of just the, the number of people that we have. And, 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 I, and I know that there have been times where I was like, oh, you know, and I'm just being honest with you. I'm going to kind of open the door into the pastor world. There's been moments where you're kind of like, oh, good. You know, this guy's almost ready to be baptized. And I know, you know, it's been a while since we had one. And I really need to get one so people think I'm doing a good job. And so I kind of get excited because, it look, well, look what our pastor did. He baptized. If pastors are using the number of baptisms to talk about how good they are, then we're measuring the wrong thing. Because baptism doesn't teach how good a pastor is. It teaches how good a God is. You know, and that's who should be getting all the praise for the work being done in salvations and not any particular person or another. So I think that sometimes we, we, we've gotten in a rush to measure the wrong thing. 
And the fourth one is the fear of offense. The tr- be, the true, be true about it is that we struggle sometimes to inform people about hell, to inform them about sacrifice, about self-denial, about putting others first, about holy living. And so when it comes to, to addressing this, we, we just kind of want to let people off the hook and say, yes, you've just fallen away. They've, they've fallen away. You know, they, 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 I'm, sure they're, I'm sure they're still good with God. We haven't seen them in seven and a half years. You know, and as far as I know, they live life like any pagan on the street. But, but certainly we don't want to go address that. We don't want to point out the fallacy that you might think you're saved, but you haven't lived like it for such a long time that we're really concerned about that. And so we take the easy road out and, you know, we just once saved, always saved, right? Instead of addressing the fact that maybe you weren't. Because that would be offensive, that would be difficult. That would really put us out there and we would be judgmental and, you know, holier than thou and on our high horse and all that kind of stuff. And so instead of offending people, we just let them go and we bank on, well, they said this one thing one time. And so hopefully that'll get them in the gate instead of really addressing it. And I think these things contribute to this, this idea of false conversions. And we sit here wondering, what about all those people who used to be so on fire, who used to be here that we knew that, that told us they love Jesus and we haven't seen or heard from or seen anything else in their life for a long, long time. And by any other standard, they live like non-believers live. So I think that's probably some of the contributing factors. So the question today is, well, what are we to do about all this? What, if what, where are we to go? And so I want to turn to a scripture that I told you about that I think addresses that problem. We're going to see two things from this scripture. One is that this isn't a new problem. <laughs> this is a problem that Jesus seemed to be aware of in his, in his own time. And we're going to see some characteristics that we can use to evaluate our genuine conversion. And that's really what we're going to talk about today. So here we are ready to take off finally. So what are we to do? Well, here's the passage from, from Luke chapter 8. Now, let me give you a little context. I'm, I'm jumping down. Jesus has told a parable, and it's the parable of the seed and the soils. Some people usually say the sower and the soils, but it's really about the seed and the soils that the seed lands in. And he tells this whole parable. And we're not going to read the parable part. You know, Jesus, the, I'll give you the highlights. Uh, sower, sow seed. Some fall on, a, on the a hard packed ground or the road. Some fall among rocks and thorns. Rocks and some falls among thorns. And then some falls on good ground and it bears fruit. But in verses, starting with verse 9, Jesus begins to explain this parable. And that's what we're going to read, the explanation to the disciples. Verse 9. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And, one, and the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, received it with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while, and the time of testing, they fall away. And as for what fought, fell among the thorns, those are those who hear, but they go on their way. Uh, excuse me, verse 14. And as for those 
for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and the riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that that is in good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. And so what I really want to talk about today and kind of spend the rest of our time here today is, is four qualities of good soil. Four qualities of good soil. So we, he tells this parable, and, and so there's certainly, there, the verse people, they're obviously not getting it. So they don't hear the word, they're not saved. Then there's these two groups that, that seem to respond to the word. They, they, they receive it in some kind of way. They, they get excited about it, but they don't stick it out. And then the final group seems bears fruit. And in my interpretation, since this is my working and my interpretation today, I've always thought that the, the only truly saved people in this parable is that last one. Because bearing fruit is of major importance. We just read about a passage in Luke, right? That's what he's saying. He's talking about a fig tree. And he's like, this tree's not bearing fruit. Let's rip it out and throw it away. Why should it use up the soil? And the guy goes, let me first have a chance to, to prune it and to fertilize it and help it grow. But if it doesn't produce fruit soon, we will rip it out and burn it up. And so fruit and bearing fruit is really one of the, is the result of salvation. And we'll get to that one in a minute. So there's four characteristics listed, that listed in that last verse in verse 15 that I think uh, help us to evaluate ourselves and our conversion. When we look at ourselves, and we should always start looking at ourselves and our own conversion and maybe be able to help other people see theirs. So the first, first thing is it says they hear the word. Verse 15, as for those in the good soil, it is those who hearing the word. <coughs> now, the truth of the matter is without hearing meaning some kind of basic understanding of the gospel, there is no salvation. There is no salvation if you don't hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so one of the things we must understand is, is the first thing that, that, that Jesus is saying, you've got to understand what I'm talking about. You've got to understand the word. Uh, Romans 10 puts it this way. This is verse 8, starting with verse 8 in Romans 10. It says, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the, one, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jews and Greeks. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In verse 14. Now then, will they, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they've never heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching proclaiming and that's not just the preacher by the way that's all of us now and how will they preach unless they're sent and how is, and it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news and, and so the first requirement to be good soil is you got to hear the word you got to know the word you got to have some basic understanding of the gospel and so the first check as we check our salvation, and, and if anyone ever wants to, what do you think about my salvation? The first check is to ask this question. What's the gospel? 
Can you write and articulate what it is? And so one of the first things, I would encourage you to take some time at some point and write down a couple of sentences at least of what the gospel is so that you can say, look, I have heard it. Here's what I hear. Here's what I know. Here's what I believe. This is what I understand the gospel to be. Because if you don't have that basic start, there is no salvation. So that's the first thing, first characteristic of the soil. Here's the gospel. It understands it. Second one. The second quality is hold it fast. Verse 15, as for that they hear the gospel, hearing the word, hold it fast. Now, you know, and I've told you in the past that I, I love to uh, make up words. I'm going to show you a word I make up. Stick to itness. This is what we all need. Stick to itness. To hold fast to the gospel. And the real problem with these people that we we wonder about their conversion is they're not sticking to it. They're not holding it fast. And and the fact of the matter is that stick to itness may be the greatest evidence of salvation that you have. That over and over and over the Bible talks about sticking with it, endurance, holding fast. Uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 12, it says, But because of lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. It was important enough, Jesus said it another time in Matthew's gospel, the 10th chapter. Again, he says, And you will be hated before my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Paul closes out uh, his time with Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord will present to me in that day. And so Paul's talking about, look, I have stuck it out. And my confidence, because I've stuck it out, I'm expecting the reward of the Lord. In 1 John, and this is why I say I believe those who come and do all this and then disappear from us and, and fall away were never really saved. It's based on this passage, particularly from 1 John chapter 2. It says, my little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sin, and not only for ours, but for all the sins of the whole world. Verse 3, and by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word is truly in him is truly in love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him, and whoever abides in him ought to walk in the same way. In which he walked. Children in the last hour, this is verse 16, says, Children in the last hour, and as you've heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists are come. Therefore, we know that in the last hour they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they never were of us. And so the Bible talks about these false prophets, these people who are claiming for a while to follow Christ, but they, they leave the church, they go out from the church, and the fact that they left is evidence that they never really were part of us. They were sticking around, they were doing whatever they were doing, but, but the evidence that they didn't stick it out is evidence that they never really were 
one of us. And so I think stick to it may be one of the, the greatest evidences of salvation, that this is, we have to stick with it. It's really the greatest test. And, and that's why I say, I think one of the things that Jesus, that God values the most is faithfulness, is, is endurance, is, is sticking to it. And, and that's why James, when he says, consider it all joy when you face various trials, various tests, because they will, they will produce endurance and so and so the trials that we face in life are these examples of hey i'm sticking with it i, I made it through this and i made it through that and, and i got stick to it in this and something is really uh keeping me close to god even when it's bad times or even when it's good times it's interesting when we think about those two soils one group falls away because things are tough another group falls away because things are good the lures of, uh, of a good life. And so it's not just persecution that makes people fall away. Some people fall away because they got it too good. And so we got to have that perfect balance of having enough pain to keep us close to the Lord and not too much that we would give up on him. And so, but we got to deal with both of those issues. So if you're being highly successful, watch out. <laughs> Can you stick to God even when you don't think you need him? And do you stick to God when you're not sure he's even showing up on the place. Will you stick no matter what? The fact of the matter is, endurance, this kind of stick to itness, is not something that just happens. I, I think it's wise for us to plan on having stick to itness. That that we we start to prepare ourselves to stick to it. That that you know, if uh, I imagine, Lord, if I win the lottery which will be a miracle since I don't ever play it. But if I win it, I'm going to stick with you. You know, I, I, if I had all that I could ever want, I would still need Jesus. And then I also think about, and, and this is a practice, this is a, a practice from a, a Bible study that I did called Call to Obedience. It's talking about releasing fears, and, and, and it's an exercise where you say, Dear Lord, you make this prayer, and you say, Dear Lord, even if, and you name the worst thing imaginable, even if the worst thing I can possibly imagine, and you'd be specific, and you talk about your major fear, even if, Lord, I find out that I have cancer, I'm going to stick with you. I'm going to follow you because I know that your grace and your mercy will see me through that no matter what. Even if the worst thing happened, Father, I want to be prepared. And, and so we take these time, I, I take time to think about what's coming up in my life, what's going to happen. And as I see myself aging and find more evidence that, hey, things are running down, you know, I find myself, okay, well, if this happens, I, I, I can expect something's going to happen. I want to be prepared that the Lord helped me stick through it. I, I thought about this, and it's not, I'm not just waiting to the, get to that bridge to cross it, but I'm planning on how to cross that bridge when I get to it is the difference. So those are the first two things, uh, that they hear it, they hold fast to it with an honest and good heart. Now what I want to talk about when we talk about our honest and our good heart is, is that, that salvation really is a heart issue and it has to find good and honest soil there are no formulas to salvation you know too many people have depended upon formulas 
and human activity to define salvation and not the heart of the recipient. We do things like, you know, did you say this prayer? The sinner's prayer, that's a famous one. If you can get someone to say the sinner's prayer, and, and there's been a lot of people who've led revivals, and they, they get people, now if you said that prayer, you're saved. Maybe. Could be. Maybe not. Because saying a prayer or, or, or following through with a particular formula or, or signing a commitment card, that's all external. That's all, that can be for show. That can be for getting somebody off your back. I think I've had people who, who've said the sinner's prayer. I think I've had people who signed a commitment card just so I'd stop talking to them and leave them alone. And, and so those outward activities do not produce or do not give us real clear evidence of what's going on in the heart of a human. And there's really only two people who know that, God and the person themselves, really. And that person can even struggle with that. There, there's two verses, again, back that 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it says, examine yourselves. See whether you're in the faith or not. To, to really be honest with yourself, to take time to look into your heart and say, yeah, I, I really, really, really believe this. I believe it so much that I'm not going to quit on it. I'm not going to give it up. I'm going to stick through. I'm going to stick with God no matter what. And I'm going to do everything I can to follow him and not just believe in him. I want to be a disciple. I want to be an obedient uh, follower of Christ. Only you're going to know if that's really your heart's motivation or you're like, like somebody told me one time, I come to church. Yeah, that's a good place to make business contacts you know, because those, because you can either have that heart where you can really honestly examine yourself, or you can be like James in chapter one, verse 22, it says, but be doers of the word, get that whole doing thing again, not hearers only deceiving yourselves. And so there's two types of heart we can have this, this, we can have this honest, good heart that can really look at itself, evaluate itself, be honest with who it is and, and what you really think. Or you can be a deceptive heart. You can have a heart that you just lie to yourself. Uh, you know, I'm good to go. And, I, you know, I don't have to do any of that Jesus stuff. I'm, I, you know, I said I believe. So aren't we good forever? And then the final quality of good fruit. So they hear the word. They hold fast to the word. And an honest and good heart, they really hold it in their heart, which only you and God will truly only know. And then finally, they bear fruit. There's a harvest of fruit. It's really what sets the, the good soil apart from the other. And, and over and over, like the scripture we heard in Luke, over and over, Jesus and talks about bearing fruit, that you will know the fruit, you will know the tree by the fruit it bears. There's this expectation of fruit. And I want to give you three probably prominent fruits to, just to, for you to look for in your life. First, again, thank you for the setup this morning, Jared. The first fruit is the fruit of repentance. In Matthew's gospel the third chapter says but he saw the pharisees and the sadducees coming to him for baptism and he said to them you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come bear fruit in keeping with repentance the sadducees and the pharisees are coming to get baptized by john and john says my baptism doesn't mean nothing if you're not bearing fruit of repentance bear the fruit then get baptized repent and be baptized that that is the first fruit that any Christian, any converted person is going to bear. And if you don't have the fruit of repentance, you really should question your conversion. 
And that's just a fact. If you're not struggling with your sin, if you're not struggling to overcome your sin, if you're not planning on eradicating every sin in your life, if that's not your desire, if you don't have a repentant heart to say, I was walking away from God, now I'm going to do everything to walk towards God, and each day, every day, I want to be one step closer than I was the day before, that's repentance. And that's the very first fruit any converted person will bear. The second fruit is a spirit life. You show evidence that you're spiritually alive. Galatians chapter 5 tells us what that looks like, what a spirit-living person looks like. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All descriptions, all separate descriptions of the same thing. A spirit life. And it talks about the Spirit coming into us. And one of the ways we know we're saved is if you have the Spirit. And if you don't have the Spirit, you're not saved. And how do you know if you have the Spirit? Well, if you have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control, that you should see these qualities growing in your life. You find yourself, you know, I used to be so irritable with people. And now all of a sudden, I find it more easy to be patient with them. You know, I used to just want to be by myself, and now I just want to be with other people. I love people. I love doing things for people. I'm, I'm motivated to care for others. I don't know. I was not the way I used to be. Uh, I, I am gentle. I'm faithful. Oh, faithfulness, again, is a good marker that, that I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to stick to it. I can be trusted and counted on. These are products of a spirit life. If you want to see what a non-spirit life looks like, you can look up in Galatians chapter 5 because it gives a whole long list of what other people who don't have a spirit life looks like. They have a fleshly life. And so that's the uh, second fruit that we bear. And the third fruit, and what fruit is all about, is reproduction. Making more disciples. The whole idea of a fruit is to get the seed that's in the fruit out somewhere else so that it makes more of the same. And so one of the number one fruits that we should be trying to bear, striving to bear, is the one that we may have the difficult time doing, is that's the reproduction of other disciples. Clearly in Matthew 28, it says, go into all the world making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And it's probably that last part, that teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Because part of the problem, I think we fall short. We're quick to get people to believe. We're quick to get people to baptize. We're slow to teach them all that God commanded them. And let them know, this is what you're supposed to be producing in your life and reproducing in others disciples making disciples making disciples that's the whole idea behind bearing fruit there'll be a harvest and there'll be another harvest and there'll be another harvest because we keep reproducing ourselves and this is part this is at least three of the fruits that we should be bearing in our lives that are evidence of a spirit life the evidence of our conversion and so when we look at people who don't have that who aren't bearing fruit we must genuinely question were you ever really saved? Were you ever really converted? Or did the pain of the world or the goodness of the world somehow rob you of being good soil? 
And so I think that's probably one of the main things we struggle with when we look and we question people. And so my great advice to us is to do what the Scripture says, to take these four uh, characteristics of good soil and examine ourselves first. Make sure that we are in good standing, that our conversion is set. We're going to stick it out no matter what, and that we have the spirit life and we live that life, and then we have something to share with others.